Today's scripture reading is found in the book of Nehemiah, 2nd chapter, verse 11 and 12. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. This is the word of the Lord. So I'd like to spend a little time with you reflecting on that. And I know you're going to start Nehemiah, which is a classic case, classic study of somebody who's got a vision, somebody who's got a prayer, somebody who's got a plan, and someone to get some people involved to go get something done. So we're going to, I know that's your study you're going to, you're going to start. I'm going to you know, speak maybe in, a, in broad terms about those kind of themes this morning. So... Um, that's even what my message is called, a vision, a prayer, a plan, and a people. So I'd like you to think of me for about a half hour or so about, about those themes. Is that okay? Can we do that? These people over here are totally with me, by the way. I mean, I can hear it all the time. They are there. I just want to sit right here for a little bit. This, this side here is totally with me. You want to go? I'm not quite sure yet, but we'll, but we'll get there. I'm Dave. I'm Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I don't usually work with notes, but I got them today. Oh, by the way, your pastor, Mark, I am fortunate, proud, pleased that he considers me one of his friends. This is a person of quality, of smarts, of discernment, He's the real deal. So I'm proud to be here, thankful to be here. Okay, the first theme, the first theme assisted there is, uh, I've called it vision. That might not be the best word, actually. Maybe, maybe view is a better word. Because it's, uh, it's not just vision. Vision sometimes implies it's coming from heaven. But view is kind of what we're looking at. I don't know if you thought much about the difference between looking and seeing. You know, where you're looking is your, is your view. So one of the things that's really important here is, is discern where you're looking and if it's the right spot or not. Are you looking at the right things? Are you driving your car looking out the windshield or the rearview mirror? Which one is it? Because some people I know drive out the rearview and they're looking at the rearview mirror. You can see them all the time. And some people live their lives that way. They can't escape it. You know, when my, when my dad died uh, uh, 10 years ago, um, I, I got to suddenly realize things about my mom that were always there, but I never noticed before. And that was, she wasn't very sentimental, but not at all. That's what I kind of remembered as a child. But all of a sudden, being alone, she said to herself, I don't know how many years I got left, but I ain't living them looking back. Maybe, maybe a, a two months into it, life after my dad, she got rid of the two big American aircraft carriers in the garage and bought a little Toyota that fit her. And she said, I'm going to live every day looking forward, not looking back. I, I was, that was powerful. I didn't, even, I didn't know she had it in her. It was there all the time. I didn't see it. Also about my mom and dad. Years ago, in the 70s, there was a church business meeting. And there were chairs like this, right, like this. Yeah, just like this, the folding chairs, you know, that were set up in the church. And, and Dad worked, uh, he, was a, he worked, uh, he was his own boss, so he, he worked late oftentimes, so he got there late. So my mom's sitting right here in this chair, 
and he walks in from the back for this church business meeting. And he sees that behind my mom are several of their friends. So my dad is a, is a theatrical kind of person, and uh, he saw an opportunity to make a, make a scene. So he walked in, sat down next to her, and made a big show of throwing his arm over her head, around her shoulders, drew her to him, kissed her deeply, put her back, you know, laid her back down against the chair, thinking she's going to be swooning, you know, Paul. And instead, she was glaring at him. <laughs> Clearly upset, very upset. And Dad says, what's the matter? And my mom said, look behind me. He looked behind her, and there, on the lap of the terrified woman behind my father, was my mother's wig. Because she'd knocked it clean, he knocked it clean off her head when he threw his arm over. <laughs> did like a double somersault and a half twist and landed on the lap of the lady behind her. And here's the deal. My dad's looking right at her. And he don't see nothing. You can look and not see. So it's, it's not only where are you looking, are you looking at the right things, but are you perceiving them correctly? What's the vision? And vision is such a key theme in Scripture, such a key theme. Cain. After he murders his brother and is cast east of Eden, he founds a city. And the way the great St. Augustine talked about it, this isn't in the Bible, but it's his reflection is, he hoped for no more than he could see. Is your gaze only at the human level? Is our gaze only at the human level? Or do we have the capacity to see above, to see the future? to see our lives, to see our, our friends, our, our community, the way God does. And, if our, and even if, we're, if our eyes are, are, are cast in the right direction, are we just looking? Or do we see? Now, the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about the, about the story of, of Nehemiah, living apart, outside of Israel, here in the news, Realizing there's something that he's been in. There's a, there's, there's a breach in the, in the support of the city. He's building the wall. You're not going to build a wall. You're building a, you're building a community of faith. But there's a, there's a breach in the, in, 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 in the support of the city. And he prays to God. There in the first chapter, he prays to God, you see the trouble we are in. How interesting. He ain't even there. And he identifies himself with a community, with a people, hundreds of miles away. You see the trouble we are in. It's a, it, it, and that whole prayer is richly, it, it, the themes are richly biblical. So the, the point I want to make here is, he understands this isn't the first time he, representing his people, have been around this block. Think about Joshua. Do you remember the story of Joshua? Right after Moses dies, I mean, talk about, would you like to be Joshua? Moses passes away. Moses is gone. Like, now you're in charge? When I was younger in ministry, I liked starting programs. That way I wasn't going to be compared to anybody. <laughs> it was a lot easier. 
But God speaks to the people and he says, you know what, I'm going to send you into that land and you haven't ever been there before. How are you going to orient yourself? And do you remember they crossed the Jordan and once they're on the other side, God says, I'm going to, uh, the water stopped, but I want you to send 12 men into the, into the stream bed. And then I want them to grab a hold of stones and lose them from their moorings and take them on the, on the far side, the Israel side of the Jordan, and set them up. So that in years to come, when people come, your children come and they say, what are those stones for? You can remind them of the stories. See, those stories... Those stories aren't like a map, because a map only works if you're in the spot that the map represents. Right? You got a really good map of Sacramento, it ain't going to help you in New York City. I've been in New York City. They don't have McClatchy Street in New York City. They have Broadway, but it's a different one. But a compass, no matter where you are, it always points north. It can help you anywhere. So those stones of what God had done for them of the story of who we are, who God is, and why he made us and his purpose for us, that's like a compass to guide us. So I want to remind you of some of those, the features of that compass. We are made for God, but we've lost our way. Humanity in the, in the garden, we're naked before one another. We had nothing to hide. We're not trying to hide. We're not trying to, we, we aren't even thinking about being duplicitous or liars or faking it. And we are... We are in perfect communication with God. Nothing hidden. As soon as sin comes into the world, suddenly we're blaming each other and we're hiding. And we have within us now the capacity to sin. You know, Paul says, that which I don't want to do, I end up doing, right? That's exactly, and that's my life, right? You kind of watch yourself and you say to yourself, don't do that, even while you're doing it, right? Even after we become to faith, it's still the case. And also, we, th there's also bigger cosmic evil in the world. You know, God created the earth and he said, I'm going to trust you to run it. That's us. Have we done a good job? Holy moly, not at all. We're the ones that are responsible for systems that dehumanize us human beings collectively. So that's another one of those bits of the story. But the, other, but, but, but the, the story goes on because God doesn't leave us alone in that. He reaches out and sends the master of self-sacrifice to save you and me. So a vision a vision is for, for us, thinking about that property, 3860, right? That's the address, 3860. How can we invest that building, that spot, with new life, with telling the truth about who we are as human beings and reach out with hands of friendship and love and kindness to that community. 
because we're all broken and we cannot fix ourselves. And the wacky thing is our culture, our world tries to say, yes, we can, or tries to say, no, we're not broken. But there's evidence all around us that we are. This is the old story. And it's not just a Christian story. The Roman historian Livy, he wrote these words right about the time Jesus was a teenager. He wrote, in recent years, wealth has made us greedy. And self-indulgence has led us through every form of sensual excess to be, as it were, chasing after our own deaths. We know it's killing us, but we don't have the capacity to stop. That could have been written tomorrow about American culture. We all know, everybody knows, even if they're hiding from themselves, but deep down, that we're on the road to destruction. So, so the vision is, the view is, how do we see this opportunity? How do we, how do we see that neighborhood and reach out with the authentic compassion and salvation that our Christ offers? So a vision. It's a prayer. I think prayer is a hard thing to understand. Do you think that's true? I mean, the way we live it out. A lot of times our prayers are a laundry list of things we want. I imagine that if God gets tired, that probably, that probably is what makes him tired, hearing that. I'm old enough now, I turned 58 a month ago, three weeks ago, I'm old enough now that I should know that what I want and what actually I need are two different things. But I still pray for what I want. Really praying is opening the door. It's engaging God in a conversation and saying, I want you, I want to be listening. I want to let you fill me. And one of the really difficult things about prayer, I don't know if you've experienced this, but it's really hard to pray and stay concentrated. Right? And a, a, th this was written by a French theologian in the 1700s. So, so what's that? I'm not good at math. 300 years ago. Before technology. He said... Prayer is difficult because we are stunned by the noise of the world. And we are captivated by the confusion within. Think about that. Stunned by the noise of the world. This is awesome, and it's horrifying at the same time. Do you agree with me? It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's captivating us. And our culture, our culture says, 
whatever you want, you deserve. And that is just simply not true. But our culture says that. So I had to get a new phone a while ago because I, 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 I forgot it was in my pocket and I was underwater. So then I had to get a new phone. I went to the Verizon store, this young man who didn't know anything about me. I said, I need a new phone. He said, here's what you need. Didn't ask me anything about me. Just said, here's what you need. And he, hand, he showed me this phone. He said, it's the latest model. It's, the fa it's faster than the Starship Enterprise. You need this phone. And I said, I don't, I don't want faster. He goes, what do you mean you don't want faster? I said, I, I don't want faster. I think it's good to, to intentionally slow down. He goes, what are you talking about? Everybody wants faster. I said, I said, I don't. He said, looked me right in the eye and he said, not only do you want fast, you deserve it. <laughs> Our culture is perhaps the most dangerous, that part of our culture is perhaps the most dangerous anti-Christian culture that human beings have ever created. Because even though we know we shouldn't get everything we want right away, our culture says we should and we deserve it. It is deeply, deeply anti-Christian in that regard. So part of our prayer then needs to be, Lord, help me reorient. Help me detox from this sense, this, this, this barrage that has created in me a black hole of self-interest, that, uh, that the gravitational pull of which I cannot escape. You feel that way sometimes? I do. And I'm a seminary professor. You think if I feel that way, you know, what's the guy in the next car who I'm angry at for cutting me off? Right? It's spasmodic. Just get on the freeway and I'm suddenly, I'm suddenly, I am the black hole of self-interest. <laughs> Prayer is the opportunity to get past ourselves. Let God speak to us and then recalibrate that inner compass so it actually points Godward and not meward. You're about to embark on a really interesting, exciting, challenging project. It's going to be really easy to get fragmented. It'll be really simple. And Satan will be really happy for that to happen. It's critically important that you gather together the elements of a compass that is trustworthy and that you keep it whole and sane and that you follow its arrow. Prayer can help you do that. Not just prayer individually, but prayer collectively. My experience, and I think I'm kind of a smart guy, my experience is the plan I have and the plan that God actually wants to work are two different ones. How you get it done. And I, you know what? I'm going to trust his plan better than mine. Oliver Cromwell said to the Scottish Presbyterians, I beg you from the depths of my bowels, consider the possibility you might be wrong. Not you are wrong. 
That's a good, but it's a good spiritual pill to take. I'm going to stop and say, wait a minute. I might be in love with myself here. Lord, brothers and sisters, help me reorient. Make sure our orientation is right. I urge you, I even admonish you to keep together and make sure you're following the same compass. A vision. A prayer. A plan. Have you noticed in his letters, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, uh, I'll do whatever it takes to win people to Christ. That's interesting. In Acts 15, he wins the battle that Gentiles don't need to become Jews in order to become believers in Christ. But before you get four verses into Acts 16, he circumcises Timothy. Now, if Paul were a person of rules, he would never do that. But Paul's a person who's a compass maker. He says, well, when I'm with Gentiles, then the most important thing is winning them to Christ. And I will sacrifice items that are two and three on the important scale to get the most important thing done. Does that make sense? So even as you, even as you uh, have a vision and a prayer and you develop a plan, I suggest you follow Paul's orientation. Because when he shows up in a town, he does a little reconnoitering. He says, what's going on in this neighborhood? What does this neighborhood actually need? If, they, if, they, if they've already got a, a certain thing going on, they don't need me to do more of that. So what is it, as you formulate a plan, pray and investigate. That's why Nehemiah walks around the city quietly, does some investigation, does some looking at where the wall is broken down, looking at where it's strong, figures out what about the, the human uh, capital I have with me. But, but, but develop a plan, not according to some sort of set of directions that came with the box from Ikea or wherever it was, but develop a plan based on your own spirit-filled investigation of the needs. What does this neighborhood need? What are the resources we have to bring to it? Maybe another, another good question is, what are the areas of lack that we have? That might be the place where God's going to show up. A plan. And as you do so, remember those stones. And now to change the image, those stones, those, those truths about who God is and about who you are that then form that compass. The last theme is a people. I don't know if you've read Nehemiah lately, um, but you'll see it down the road. There are whole chapters that do nothing but name people. So-and-so built this part of the wall and set its doors and bars and windows in place. Names over and over. And some of those names are like, Seven syllables with lots of Hebrew, you know, it's just, just. So the trick to, re, to, uh, to actually pronouncing Hebrew is act like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> Honest to God, that's, that's how it is, because Hebrew, ancient Hebrew was a written language without vowels. 
a written language without vowels. So nobody actually knows for sure how things were pronounced. So be confident <laughs> when you read those, when you read those names. Now there's a corollary in the New Testament. And Mark alluded to it um, in a tangential way earlier. When he said the church isn't, he made reference to the fact that the church isn't a building. The word uh, in Greek, ecclesia, means the assembly. Not the place where they meet, but the people gathered together. And the other image Paul has for the Christian community is an organic one. It's the body. Remember how he talks about that in 1 Corinthians 11? He said the parts need each other. Now, my experience in church, and I've been going to church since I was, I mean, I, I, I grew up going to church. We used to go away on vacation, but we'd come home Saturday night to be at our church. You'd go leave Friday, come home Saturday. The one, I, didn't, I remember thinking it wasn't much of a vacation, but that's the way we did it. But my experience was, um, I'm not sure I really understood or, or saw a model that we need each other. There are a lot of people that had a lot of competence, and there were certain pastors that were really good at communicating, and, and then uh, you know, they, were, you know, they pretty much got talked about. And, but I'm not sure I really I, I thought much about what I meant to need each other until I was uh, working on my Ph.D., and Christine and I were in a couple's Bible study. And one night, uh, well, so if, if you're working on your Ph.D. In, in the New Testament and you're in a couple's Bible study, you become answer boy for the Bible study. And I, so I was answer boy. And I liked being answer boy. I got a lot of strokes for being answer boy. They'd ask me questions, and I'd answer. Sometimes I wouldn't know the answer, but I'd say whatever came to my head, because what do they know? You know, I'm the one going to get my PhD. So that was, that was awesome for me. And this new couple showed up, Eric, I'll never forget them, Eric and Teresa Echegaray. And they both said, you know, they haven't been to church in years. I think Eric didn't grow up going to church, and Teresa did, but, but it's been years since you've been going to church. So I remember thinking to myself, no threat to answer, boy. And the first question came, and everyone looked at me, and I took a breath to start, and all of a sudden, Teresa starts talking. And I remember thinking, somebody should explain the rules of the Bible study to Teresa. And then after about 10 seconds, I'm thinking, that's pretty good. And 15 seconds later, I'm, I'm looking for a, a pencil. Because what she was saying was awesome. And I, and I learned that night that, that you know, I mean, her wisdom went beyond people with three PhDs. And here's what struck me. We see each other based on outward stuff. I'm wearing a coat. Didn't wear a tie. I'm worried about that. Didn't know how high to go, how low to go. But I'm wearing a coat. I got pretty nice shoes on. I guess I look like you got to take me seriously. We judge by outside things, right? Cars, where you live, how you talk. I want you to look around the room. I want you to look in people's eyes, please. 
Look in their eyes. So here's the way it works. The healing that God has for you is going to come through the touch of the hands of someone in this room. But if you only see people based on the way the world views them, you'll miss that healing touch. Paul says we need each other. He says when one part suffers, the whole body suffers. Now I've been in churches where there's been a part hurting and I haven't been hurting at all. It's like I've been anesthetized. But if my left arm has been anesthetized and someone comes along with a chainsaw and cuts it off, just because I don't feel it don't mean I ain't bleeding. You are the body. You are connected intimately. God has a task, a vision, a prayer, a plan, and a task for you. But to be successful, you've got to recognize we actually need each other. Because we are not complete of, our, of ourselves. I got some talents that God gave me. I didn't deserve them. Can't get too excited about them because they were gifts. Why should I be excited about something I know how to do, I can do well too, because it's a, it's a gift. I didn't work at all. That's a, I can't claim any, any credit for that. But I got other areas where I have, I, I mean, rocks have more talent than me. We need each other. I want you to look around this room one more time. Please. And, and look in the eyes. Because these, these folks, this is your family of faith. You're a body. You need each other. There is a spot a few miles from here off Broadway after it bends on the other side of the of 99. Folks, a hundred years ago started a congregation and then they built that building. And now by God's grace it's come to you. A vision, a prayer, a plan and a people. God, we are just amazed that you even care about us. And yet, 